We'll be reading Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. When he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you, Grant. Well, before we look at this morning's text, I want to draw your attention to the screen here. On uh, July 28th, which is one week from today at 7 p.m., we are going to be doing a Worship in the Park event at Cottagewood Park. If you know where Dan and Michelle Holder live, this is directly behind their house, so it's kind of in that Eaglewood neighborhood. We're especially excited about this because the Holder and the Archer missional communities have personally invited, mm, how many a hundred maybe homes we've visited in that neighborhood, left cards when nobody was home, but, but, but when somebody was home, we, we just personally invited them to come to that worship in the park night. And so I have three things for you as you think about this worship in the park night. The first thing, I would love you to pray. Pray that the Lord would bring unbelievers. Brandon Smith, he's an elder at Ignite Church, is going to be sharing the gospel and his testimony that night. Secondly, invite a friend or a coworker. If everybody here picked one person to invite, that would be wonderful. Finally, join us. Come at seven, a little bit before that, bring chairs and set up. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help now. As we look to your word, we look to Matthew, we look to what it means to be a peacemaker, we look to you as the God of peace. Would you help me in my preaching? Would you give ears to hear? Would you open hearts to believe? Glorify your name, God, in these people. Amen. Additionally, one last thing. Dan and Jeremy and I were at an elder retreat last weekend where we had a time to spend with our wives and with each other and pray and study the scriptures and talk about the future of Grace City. That, that was in part paid for through the church budget. And so thank you for contributing to that, that we can go on those trips and pray for you and, and, and learn more carefully from the Lord how we can serve you. Well, we are nearing the end now of our sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. Jeremy Martinson first introduced us to this topic by preaching in Galatians 5, and then we've worked through different fruits as we've drawn our attention to different places within the Scriptures that gives us additional insight into what these fruits of the Spirit are like. 
Now, if you haven't noticed yet, our goal here is that we want you to grow in these fruits. We want to manifest these fruits in our lives. We want to become more loving and more patient and more kind and peaceable and good, all for the glory of God and our good and the good of our neighbors and the world. But we want that power for those things to come, not through our own strength, but rather we want it to come through the Spirit. Now next week, Ryan Orcutt is going to preach on joy, and then Jeremy Martinson, Pastor Jeremy, will, will finish this series on the capstone fruit of, of love. And so today, we're going to look at the fruit of peace from Matthew 5, 9. But before we do that, I need to draw a distinction concerning the fruit of peace. When we come to the Bible, we see that the idea of peace, and therefore the fruit of peace, is, is more comprehensive than we typically think about the fruit of peace. Often we think about peace is the opposite of war or the absence of conflict. So it's, it's war and peace. And yet when we come to Scripture, this idea of peace is more comprehensive than that. In the Bible, the word shalom, which is Hebrew, from which we get the word peace, and the word irene, which is Greek, it encompasses simply more than absence of conflict. It can mean in good condition or safe. It can mean sound. It can mean well. This is why people would say shalom as a greeting. It's a, it's a well wish upon the recipient. It can mean completed, like a completed building. You might be able to think of a jigsaw puzzle that's missing some pieces. It's, it's lacking shalom. It needs shalom. It needs restoration. And all of those ideas are contained with this, this larger biblical idea of peace. And so there's a lot we could say about that. But we don't have a lot of time. Instead, I want to focus on one smaller component, one smaller aspect of the fruit of peace that I think is critically important as we work to live together as families, as spouses, and especially as a church. Particularly, I want to focus on peacemaking. That is, us as spirit-filled disciples of Jesus who go about the work of bringing and making peace. Now, last week I, I told you that our patience should be spirit-wrought, should be worked by the Spirit, it should be Christ-bought, and it should be God-sought. And all of that is true for how we do peacemaking as well. And I think we'll see some of that worked out throughout the rest of this message. But I'm not going to rehash all of that. But if, if we're going to live peaceably as a church and as families, with our neighbors, even with our enemies, we're going to need supernatural power for that. We're going to need spirit enablement because the things that require peacemaking are not easy. You're not capable of them. I'm not capable of them. We need God in us to do the work of peacemaking. Moreover, peacemaking is non-negotiable. Churches crumbles. Churches crumble because of lack of peacemaking. Families explode because Christians can't do the work of 
Being peacemakers, friendships die, lawsuits rise, ministry partnerships fade away, churches split, co-workers refuse to work together. There's almost no end to the damage that can be caused when we fail to practice spirit-empowered peacemaking. Entire books of the Bible are written because of this problem. And so my hope for this church is that we continue to live and to love in unity, for example, as we did during COVID, which could have been a conflict-ridden time. But if we're going to do that, we need to manifest this fruit of peace. We will have conflict as, our church, as a church. In fact, the elders, the elder team, when we talk, we, we say, we, we should have conflict. Conflict rightly handled in the power of the Spirit for the good of one another is actually a, is an opportunity. But conflict handled wrongly can be just as dangerous as conflict avoidance. We will and must have conflict. But when we handle conflict outside of the power of the Spirit, it's a device of Satan to divide and destroy. So, our peacemaking is not optional. This is not a, well, if we do peacemaking, that's great, but if not, that's okay. That, that, that's not how this is. Peacemaking is essential to our health as a church, and as families, and as spouses. Paul points to the importance of this in Titus 3, 10, and 11. He says, as for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The necessity of the fruit of peace in our relationships can hardly be overstated. In fact, it's so meaningful that to be a peacemaker is to be like God. So let's turn our attention to Matthew 5, 9. Before I do that, though, I want to offer just a brief word concerning how we should read these beatitudes or how we should read these blessings. There's a hazard that we need to avoid as we come to the beatitudes, lest we read them wrongly. If we read them wrongly, we'll read them as necessary conditions for our justification. If you are a peacemaker, God will justify you, and then you can come into right relationship with him. Rather, these statements are statements concerning the characteristics of those who are already children of God, who are members of the kingdom. They're they're not ethical entrance requirements. They're descriptions of those who are part of the kingdom. Jesus is describing what his disciples are like. They are like him. And so then, as with the fruits of the Spirit, these are necessary manifestations in the lives of those who are filled with the Spirit. Just as the fruits of the Spirit are outpourings of his presence in us, so too these characteristics described in the Beatitudes are characteristics of those who have been filled with the Spirit of God and are members of God's kingdom. Peacemaking is what kingdom citizens do. We are peacemakers. 
Another way to describe it would be to say that, that these describe those who are filled with the Spirit and manifest His fruits. All right, well, let's turn to, to verse number nine. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemaker, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, the first thing I want you to see from this text is that sons of God implies a father. God is the measure here. He is the backdrop. When we speak of sons of God, we should ask the question, what is this father? What is this God like? Well, five times in the Bible, five times in the New Testament, rather, God is called the God of peace. If we think of peace as wholeness and restoration and completeness, He does all of those things for us as He heals us and completes us and restores us. But listen, God is also the chief reconciler. He makes peace. God is a peacemaker. Reconciliation is is one of God's chief works in the gospel. We can't even talk about the gospel without talking about reconciliation. In fact, he's a reconciler in a lot of ways, and I want to point us to two. The first is God reconciles us to himself in Christ. Look what 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 with me. It says, all of this is from God through who Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We were at war with God. We were in conflict with Him. We were His enemies. In fact, we were under His judgment and condemnation as a result of our trespasses, as a result of our sins. But now, as a result of Christ's work, we are reconciled as a result of our justification, that is, our being acquitted of our sins. That's what Paul means when he says, not counting their trespasses against them. As a result of that, then now we've been brought into fellowship with God. We've been reconciled. God is a peacemaker. And that message of reconciliation is at the heart of the gospel, and we bring that message to others, like Eaglewood, As we share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're entrusted with what Paul calls a ministry of reconciliation. Secondly, I want you to see that God is a peacemaker and that he reconciles Jew and Gentile together into a single body. On account of the Mosaic law, Jew and Gentile were separated They were cut off from one another. The the law stood as a barrier between the Jews and the other nations. And it prevented full fellowship, primarily, for example, through the purity laws and and the food laws. Jew and Gentiles barred from unity. But in the gospel, that hostility is abolished in Christ as he brings together Jew and Gentile reconciles them together into a single new man called the church. 
And so God is a peacemaker in bringing together Jew and Gentile into one new body and then reconciling that body together to him. Look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 16. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So that he might create one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. God destroys the hostility between Jew and Gentile. Our Father is a peacemaker. Secondly, from Matthew 5, 9, I want you to see that peacemakers are called sons of God. Or to state it another way, we could say they, that sons of God are peacemakers. There, there's a specific reason that Jesus uses this sonship language. He uses it because sons are like their fathers. In antiquity, it would have been really normal for a son to have the same trade or the same craft as his father. That, that trade or that craft would have been handed down father to son, father to son. It would have been a, a family pro- profession. And so the, the son would be engaged in the same type of work as the father. And we see other ways that sons are like their fathers too. The son might look like his father. They might move like their father, have the same mannerisms as their father. Sometimes they have the same interests as their fathers. We might say that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree or that he's a chip off the old block. When we come to the Gospels, we see that Jesus frequently talks this way in order to draw people's attention to the fact that he is the Son of God. He says things like that because my father is working on the Sabbath, so too am I working on the Sabbath. And the Jews took that to mean he was making himself equal with God. Jesus is like his father. And so too we are like our father, the God of peace. In our peacemaking, we reflect him, we image him as we go about the work of peacemaking. He's the chief reconciler. We're his imitators. We are sons and daughters of God doing the work of reconciliation and peacemaking in our personal relationships and as we bring this message of reconciliation to the world. When we visit homes in Eaglewood and we knock on the door and we hand them the card and say, I'd like you to come to this night of worship, that, that's one thing that we want. But, but the main thing we want is we want them to be reconciled to God. We're bringing a ministry and a message of reconciliation. So we are called sons of God in that we imitate him in the work of peacemaking by the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? How do we do the work of peacemaking by the Spirit? Well, first, we need to work for peace even before conflict occurs. 
And that means understanding the origins of our conflict. James 4 says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that you, your passions are at war within you? Not you individually, but you all. Your passions are at war against each of you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covenant and do not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. One of the chief causes of our conflicts is we simply just don't get what we want. James says you desire and you do not have. So often our unmet desires, our unmet needs fuel our conflict. And we find ourselves at odds with another person in our family, maybe here at church. You can probably think of times in your marriage that you and your spouse have wanted opposing things so much so that you are willing to fight for them and even hurt one another for them. But Jesus, the kingdom, the spirit offers another way. Instead, we should look to the interests of others. Peace often means putting aside our own preferences, putting aside our own desires for the benefit of others. Peace comes by means of giving up our desires in favor of the desires of the other person. And so love, this capstone of the fruit of the peace, has got to empower our peacemaking. And you have power to do that as you trust God for the results as you put aside your preferences, looking to the interests of another person, as you know that God looks to your interests. He is better at looking to your interests than you are anyways. Secondly, we should work towards peace before conflict occurs by being slow to take offense. Being offendable or being offended has become a noble social status. It's become admiral almost to be offended. Being offended means you're compassionate, you care deeply, you're enlightened. You're not going to be pushed around in the face of opposition or wrongdoing. It, it means that you have a better understanding of things than, than the other party being offended has become a normal way to, to emotionally manipulate other people. Being offended is almost like a social trump card that allows you to govern the actions and the belief and the language of another person. And as a result, being offensive is the premier social faux pas. Don't be offensive. And so we live, in, in a sense, we live in a society that esteems being offended. But that's not what God thinks. For example, Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It is to your glory to overlook. One of the main ways we work towards and maintain peace is by practicing forbearance for one another, love for one another, grace for one another, being slow to take offense, assuming the best about other people's speech. 
even when they say something wrong. In fact, it's so important that we practice this overlooking offenses is that we put it in the membership covenant of this church. If you're a member, you have, you have committed to, I will cultivate kindness in my speech, be slow to take offense, and always ready for reconciliation with a humble heart and a desire to pursue unity as I seek to fulfill the command to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Some of, some of you have probably been trained to be easily offendable. There's no glory in that. It, it may be that being around you is like walking on eggshells. It shouldn't take a lot of emotional energy to interact with you. A slightly wrong look or slightly wrong phrased sentence, a text message that didn't have the right emoji and, and you're upset. There's no glory in that. Jesus offers a better way. Rather, our default approach in interacting with anyone should be to slow to take to anger. Our default disposition should be one of overlooking offenses, both real and perceived. We should also assume the best about each other and assume that they're assuming the best about us. Let me draw your attention to this graphic up on the screen here as a means of showing you kind of how this fits into this larger picture. This graphic is from a book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. I would be thrilled, overjoyed, happy if every single person in this church read this book. It's that helpful. It's that important. But I want to draw your attention to the far left, your far left, and the far right. And on the far right, you see what are called attack responses. These are peace-breaking responses. The most extreme is murder, but it includes assault, verbal assault too, like name-calling. On your far left, however, are the peace-faking responses. There's, these are the avoidance responses. You'll, you'll recall that I said conflict avoidance is no better than conflict provoking. Okay? Rather, conflict avoidance magnifies the problem. The most extreme conflict avoidance response is suicide. But it includes things like denial. I'm just going to pretend there's no conflict, but I'm going to stew on it. Now, I want you to see the three center-most left responses at the group at the top. These are the overlook, reconciliation, and negotiation. The, the normal default response to anything that would introduce unhealthy conflict should be to overlook. We are people of grace. That should be the usual way that we interact with your spouse That should be how you interact with your missional community, practicing forbearance and love. But listen, overlook doesn't mean don't mention it and then dwell on it. Overlook is as it never happened. Forgotten. Overlook means it is totally out of our minds. 
And that should be how we usually interact with one another. However, if it's not possible to overlook, for whatever reason that might be, we move into the personal peacemaking process. That is, we move rightward into reconciliation and negotiation. And if that fails, just like Matthew 18 instructs, we bring others in, in mediation and arbitration and accountability. And so, our first effort in the work of peacemaking is to work towards peace even before conflict occurs by, number one, looking to the interests of others, and number two, overlooking offenses. But what if conflict does occur? What if overlooking is not an option? What principles then should guide us? Well, these, these four principles form the basic structure of Sandy's book, and I want to share those with you as a means of helping you think about the important aspects of peacemaking. So four, four items here. First, give glory to God. The primary goal of our actions should be to magnify God, to bring glory to Him. Our peacemaking must be God-sought. When we look first to the kingdom, we can be confident that God will be the provider of the things that we need in that conflict. We can trust Him. If you think back to last week's sermon, I told you that you needed to practice supernatural patience. That is, we needed spirit-empowered patience, and that patience comes to us by faith as we trust in the Lord. And so, too, our ability to practice supernatural peacemaking comes by faith as we trust God, His promises, and His faithfulness. Moreover, we can glorify God in our obedience to Him in peacemaking. When we're primarily concerned with our own preferences, our own desires, our own appearances, how we are going to look in this situation will inevitably magnify ourselves and not God. Rather, we should be concerned primarily with God. How can I obey and trust Him? How can I glorify Him in the midst of this conflict? How can I reflect Him? How can I demonstrate to the world in the middle of this conflict that nothing is more valuable to me than Jesus Christ? That changes everything about how you think about conflict. Not doing so will lead to peace faking or attacking, peace breaking. But when we see the eyes, when we see our conflict in light of God and His promises, we will be more fully able to trust Him for the results. Even when those results aren't what you wanted even when it means giving the other party the thing that they wanted in the way that Jesus exhorts us. Simply put, most conflicts would end if we asked the question, what would most glorify God? Number two, get the log out of your own eye. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be judged to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye when there is a log in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The sins which we're concerned with in the midst of conflict should be primarily our own sins. I would love for the normal practice within this church for it to be if two people come to a table to resolve and reconcile conflict, they would argue over who gets to confess their own sins first. Wouldn't that be amazing? There's power in the gospel for that. When we are quick and eager to see another's sins in the conflict, we will be peace-breaking or peace-faking. In the gospel, we have power and freedom to see our own sins and to confess them. In the gospel, we have power to recognize our own mistakes and sins within the conflict. Listen, because we have the only approval that matters. So often, our failure to admit sin and confess wrongdoing is wrapped up in our own self-protection, our own self-assessment, the desire of the approval of others, our need for their acceptance of us, and therefore sin's got to stay hidden. I'm not going to admit any wrongdoing here. I need to protect myself. I need to be approved and accepted by you. I need you to think I'm great. Self-defense and self-protection governs our behaviors as we look to the verdict of other people. The verdict is already in. In the gospel, the verdict is in. You have those things in Christ. And so we have freedom to confess our sins freely. In his little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, again, everybody read that. It's a 15-minute book. Tim Keller puts it this way when he's talking about Paul assessment of how he thinks about other people's judgment of him. Okay? He, he says, this is Keller's quote, Paul's not going to play that game. He says, listen, I don't, I don't care about your opinion of me, but I don't care about my opinion of me either. There's one opinion that matters. And his opinion of us is approval on the basis of Christ. And so we have radical freedom for confession in our conflicts on account of the gospel. So let's be quick to get those logs out of our own eyes. Thirdly, restore gently. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between him and you alone between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. One principle here, our correction must be for the good of other people. Correction that is intended to harm them rather than to help them is ungodly correction. 
If our correction is primarily concerned, especially with us, it is self-glorifying correction. We are concerned with the glory of God. If we come to them eager to point out their sin for our benefit, we'll be glory-grabbing. Rather, when we correct, we must correct for their sanctification because we love them. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we restore gently. As a result, we should be really eager for this type of correction. We should invite and plead and ask for it from our brothers and sisters at our MC. We've said many times here, sanctification is a community project. You know what's tricky about the blind spots of our sin? They're blind spots. That's why we need people in our sides, blind spots, so they can see our sin for us. My sanctification depends on you coming to me and saying, brother, I love you. Can can I point something out that I've observed in you that I think you need to repent of? That's how serious we are about holiness. I'm depending on people like you to come to me and point to me. Say, I love you. I care about your sanctification. If you've been reading the Bible recap with us, not long ago we finished Proverbs, and this theme is everywhere in the book of Proverbs. Over and over again, Proverbs points us to the wisdom that exists in the one who receives and invites correction well, like Proverbs 9.8. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. I wonder, does your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ rise when they lovingly correct you? I hope so. It should. And, and the gospel has power for that. Oh, that we would be open to correction and strive for sanctification. For our good, not harm, of our brothers and sisters. These are, in some sense, upside-down values for an upside-down kingdom. Finally, number four... Forgive one another. Forgive. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive Biblical forgiveness is a decision to treat someone in the same manner that we treated them before the offense occurred. When we say, to, when we say forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you, we don't mean that we're forgiving at the same time that the Lord has forgiven us. We mean in the same manner, in the same way that the Lord has forgiven us. Our forgiveness looks like God's forgiveness because we're sons and daughters of God. We're his 
children. We imitate him. I think few of us would be excited about a type of forgiveness that says, I, I forgive you and, and I'm not really going to have a relationship with you anymore. I, I forgive you, but I'm going to keep you at arm's length. I, I forgive you, but I'm going to still remember and in some sense hold against you that offense. None of us would be excited if that's how the Lord forgave us. For most of us, especially when we've been hurt deeply, forgiveness is very hard. Our desire for self-protection rises up. And that desire to protect ourselves governs the situation. And yet, the Lord calls us, by the power of the Spirit, to forgive as we have been forgiven. In his book on the subject, Sandy says that forgiveness involves, involves four decisions. Not feelings, four decisions. He says, I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident, and I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Wouldn't that type of forgiveness in this body be wonderful? The power for that is here. We have power for that type of love for one another. Forgiveness is a decision to forget. As if, as if it never occurred. Kids, when you fight with your brothers and sisters and you go apologize and then your brother or sister says to you, you're forgiven. When you say you're forgiven, what you mean is good thought, hurt you not, gossip never, friends forever. Forgiveness is total reconciliation. Now that type of forgiveness, by and large, is costly. It will be difficult. It's going to cost you something. That type of forgiveness, to forgive as God in Christ forgave us, that type of forgiveness is self-sacrificial. You put yourself at risk with that type of forgiveness. Most of the time, our forgiveness comes with guardedness. And yet God calls us to forgive as he has forgiven us. We, we shouldn't be surprised that the type of forgiveness that God calls us to is costly. Because sons are like their fathers. Sons and daughters are like their father. After all, our forgiveness was bought with a price. And in fact, it was bought with the most costly of prices, the, the precious blood of Jesus. Self-sacrificial, laying down one's life for the forgiveness of others. And so too should our forgiveness be. And for that, you need supernatural power. You need to trust in the promises of God. We need to be fully rooted in the gospel. The gospel then both secures and empowers our spirit-wrought 
Christ bought, God sought peacemaking. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would we be peacemakers? I pray that you would glorify your name through the peacemaking of these people as we overlook offenses of one another, as we strive to defer our preferences for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ, as we lovingly correct, as we eagerly await correction from our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can grow more fully into your image. Father, make us forgiving, gracious people. None of these things can we do apart from your help. And so I pray for myself and for each person here. Lord, um, maybe this is from you. Even now, uh, there might be someone here who has bitterness that has grown in their heart and has not yet forgiven in the way that was described here. Would that person go and let that, let, that type of, let that type of forgiveness happen today? Glorify your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.